The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. in more closely with what we're looking at this morning. You may know the story behind this song. I'll not go into the details, but in the late 1800s, a man by the name of H.G. Spafford, who wrote this song, had his wife and three daughters traveling across the North Atlantic, and unfortunately there was an accident, and all three girls were drowned. And later, in the crucible of suffering, H.G. Spafford wrote this wonderful, comforting song, It Is Well With My Soul. I hope you can say that today, and thank you for reminding us of that so beautifully, Randy. Look in your Bible, if you will, with me at the three closely related passages. I'm using the King James Version because it captures the meaning, I think, of these three verses, parts of verses. Uh, better than any other translation. Look, if you will, to begin with at just the first part of Psalm 89, verse 48. The psalmist asks a question. What man is he that shall not see death? And of course, the implied answer is no one. Then the writer of Proverbs answers that in chapter 14, verse 32, the end of the verse. But the righteous has, H-O-P-E, said, hope in his death. What manner of man is you that shall not see death? All of us will. But the righteous has hope in his death. And then that little short epistle of James, written by the half-brother of our Lord, Ask in verse, 19, uh, verse 14 of chapter 4 this question. What is your life? It is even a vapor, a, a mist, one of the translations have it. It's a puff of smoke that appeareth for a little time and then vanishes away. Ever how long we live, that's the best we can say. It's here today and gone relatively shortly Thereafter, for over 70 years now, I have basically been doing every single Sunday what we're doing here this morning. I've been in church somewhere every Sunday. You say, don't you ever take a vacation? Yeah, but not from the Lord. When we went on vacation, our family always went to church. I hope yours does. But I've been in church almost every Sunday of my life for the last seven Decades, And I say that not to impress you with my Sunday school and church attendance, but with this. In all those years, and having heard numbers and numbers of sermons, never once did I hear anyone preach on what I want to try to preach to you about this morning. And that is preparing for inevitable grief. We do a lot of talking about getting ready to die. You know that passage in the Bible, prepare to meet your God. There's a place for that. But what about, I'm not talking now about getting ready to die yourself, but preparing for the death 
of loved ones. A husband, a wife, a mother, a child, a friend. How many of you in your lifetime have lost someone close to you? Let's see your hat. Almost all of us will lift up our hand, and I have. My mother and dad both are in heaven today. Ten years ago this week, we buried my mother right up here at Southern Heritage. And I want to share with you out of that crucible some observations about what we can do to prepare for that before the crisis comes. You see, I can talk to you relatively comfortably this morning. There's no casket here. There's nobody died. And we're not going to the cemetery when we leave here, I hope. So let's talk about it honestly, relaxed, but biblically. What about preparing for inevitable grief? A simple statement I'll give you to fix everything in your mind is this. The mortality rate among all mankind of all the continents is the same worldwide. One death per person. When you get home, you'll think about what that means. <laughs> One death per person. Approximately 1% of our population here in America dies every year. 1%. Now, if our church were average, and you're not average, but if we were average, that means that approximately 30 of our members would die this year. Now, last year, you had a good year. Only 12 members died. I don't get the big head. I was in Huntsville several years ago, and it was in one church six years. We had only had five funerals in six years. We had a slogan, John Whitesburg Baptist and live forever. <laughs> no, <laughs> we don't do that, but you are a relatively young congregation, even though some of you are senior adults. Basically, your record is less than what it would be nationwide. One percent of the population of America dies every single year. Last year, 14, uh, 12 of our members died. Six of you lost spouses in death. 28 of us lost our parents in death. Maybe you're here this morning and you were in that group. And two of our members lost a child. Now, it doesn't make any difference to the relationship. Grief is experienced anytime we lose anything of value. Now, I can almost hear somebody say, Carter, I can't believe this. I made a New Year's resolution. I was going to come back to church in 2015. I couldn't get here last Sunday. It was a holiday weekend, but here I am. And now there you get up there talking about death. I don't like you. I don't like it. I don't like to talk about it. Now, hold on, hold on. I know I see some of you saying, yeah, that's just what I said. How did you know that? Human nature being what it is, that's the way some people act. You don't want to talk about death or dying. That's why 75% of Americans die intestate. What in the world does that mean, preacher? They die without a last will and testament. Without going into all of the fallacies of that, hear me now. I'm not joking with you. I'm just trying to be as facetious as you are. If you were promised me one thing, that you will never die, I'll promise you to shut up and not finish this sermon. 
No takers. I didn't think so. I'm joking. You, you say, preacher, that's facetious. It is. But you're being facetious to say, I just don't want to talk about it. And I understand there are really three attitudes people can take toward death. Think about it. One attitude is morbid. Some people are always talking about it. It seems to me the older we get, the more we talk about death and dying. Sometimes you get letters from your grandparents or older people, and they write from their hometown, and they tell you who died last week, who's about to die, and whose funeral they went to today. They're always talking about death. Morbid. Other people have a carefree attitude about it. They just don't want to talk about it. You say, that's me. Well, look, friend, you're going to die one day, and somebody close to you is going to die one day. So the sensible thing to do is to talk about it now outside the emotion of the moment when you've got hopefully sanity and, and spiritual insight. So let's do that this morning and do it confidently, not arrogantly. We don't know it all. The Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know about life after death. It tells us everything we need to know. So three things I'd like to fix in your mind quickly this morning about preparing for inevitable grief, not your death, but the death of people around you that we love dearly, like H.G. Spafford did his own three daughters who died. First of all, let me say a word to you psychologically. What happens to our own thought processes psychologically when someone close to us dies? Secondly, practically. Why do we have a funeral? Why do we do it the way we do it? And thirdly, and most importantly, Biblically, what does the Bible say about death and dying? Psychologically, remember this. A person can best be comforted in the time of death who has some idea in advance how death or grief works. One more time. You can best be comforted when that day comes if you know in advance somewhat about how the grief process works. And we're indebted now to a lot of studies that have been made. The first one that I know anything about was done a number of years ago by Dr. Eric Lindemann, who was professor of psychiatry at Harvard University. The famed Coconut Grove fire outside of Boston had occurred, and scores of people had lost their lives in this tragic fire. And he and his colleagues, studying in psychiatry and psychology, did personal interviews with many, many of the people who lost loved ones in that fire. And they came to what now is called and recognized, as far as I know, worldwide, the grief process. That is, what you and I can expect to go through when someone near us dies. And they said five stages. Here they are. Number one, there is initial shock. Now the degree of that shock depends on how the person died. If they died slowly with cancer or some debilitating condition, and some of us have had loved ones who've lingered for years and years and years, but still when the final time comes, even if they've been sick five, ten years, when death comes, there's a shock. Or if they came and it was a heart attack or an automobile accident, and boom, they're gone. It's a more graphic shock. But psychologists tell us that it's normal, natural. You're not unchristian and you're not weird if you feel shocked 
by the death of a loved one. Now, it's normal to have that. Beyond that then, they said, secondly, there's the struggle between fantasy and reality. You say, I just can't believe they're dead. I just saw them yesterday, but they are dead. But I just got a letter from them this morning, but we were planning to go somewhere next week. They tell me they've died. You know what I'm talking about. The struggle between fantasy that it can't be and reality, but it really is. Don't think you're crazy if you go through that. Normal, natural grief process goes through that. And if we respond to that healthily, usually there is a flood of grief. That is, maybe you cry. Maybe you cry profusely. But now hear me carefully. Crying is not unchristian. You believe that? You better believe it. The shortest verse in the Bible says what? What's the longest verse in the Bible? Never mind. (laughs) Jesus wept. And obviously it wasn't hopeless weeping. He knew what was going to happen. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he was weeping for many reasons. But Jesus wept. And it's okay to cry. But now listen. Express just as much grief as you feel. No more and no less. Sometimes I get the idea at some funerals that the people, the living people feel like the more they cry and carry on, the more they love mom and daddy. And I want to look at them and say, where were you for the last six months of their life? And they were nowhere to be found. Express just as much grief as you feel. And particularly if you have children who go to funerals, sometimes parents don't want to take their children to funerals. I don't care what you do about that, but if they go, don't ever say what I've heard adults say. Well, now that's all right, son. Big boys don't cry. Listen to me, boys. Big boys do cry. Big men cry. I'm not going to say big women cry. I guess they do. But <laughs> big, big boys do cry. And it's okay to cry. Paul says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have no hope. That's the one we, if we didn't have any hope, we would cry. But those of us who have hope, it's okay to cry. Don't weep as those who have no hope. We have hope. And so there's the flood of grief. Express just as much grief as you feel. No more, no less. And the degree of your grief will probably be dependent upon the closeness or lack of it of your relationship to the person that dies. But it's normal and natural to express grief. Don't feel like you've got to sublimate it and hold it in. And if you're a dedicated Christian, you won't cry. I will never forget a number of years ago, standing with Cliff Barrows at the body of his wife, Billy, who had died just before their 50th wedding anniversary. And I went to the funeral. He and I were dear friends. And standing there, Billy Graham came up and he put his arm around Cliff. I just happened to be standing nearby. And I will never forget what Billy Graham said. He said, Cliff, as tears came down his cheeks, he said, I thank God today for the first time in years I've been able to cry. His tear ducts had malfunctioned. For years, Billy Graham couldn't cry. And here with the death of one of his dearest friends, a sweet Christian lady who had played the piano for many of the crusades, had died. And a man who had been unable physically to cry with 
congested tear ducts. Said, I'm so, it feels so good, he said, to be able to cry. Now, some of you don't have any problem with that. You cry at the drop of a hat, and it's okay. Express just as much grief, tears as you feel. So the flood of grief is okay. Then there comes selective memory. When in your mind you think about the good times you and mother had, the good times you and dad had, the great fellowship you and your spouse had, or whatever the relationship was, that's normal and natural. You're not crazy when you think those thoughts. Their psychologists tell us that's a common denominator to going through a healthy grief process, that your mind focuses on memory and the blessings of good times you shared together. And after that, there comes then the acceptance of death and the readjustment to life. The acceptance of death and the readjustment to life. I've said to my wife and two daughters already, look, if I die before you do, I hope you'll miss me, but I want you to go on living. Don't give up just because daddy or husband is gone. Readjustment to life. And most of us would say, that's what I want. I don't mean your spouse dies, you go get married next week. But I am saying you don't have to grieve on and on and on and on and on and readjust to life. The day is here. Death is here. The loved one will never, ever be back. Christmas, birthdays, special days. It'll always be different. There'll always be a vacant chair, a vacant spot. That's reality. That's a part of living. Man is born and man dies. And if they're Christians, they've gone to be with the Lord. That's our hope. That's what he sang about a few moments ago. Now, quickly, psychologically, those are the five steps you can expect, according to psychologists, you and I can normally and naturally go through, and there's nothing wrong with this. But now, practically, let me say a word to you. And you may not agree with what I'm going to say here. You have your right to be wrong. No, no, I don't mean that. But what I'm going to say, you're probably not going to agree with completely, but at least think about it before you just pitch it out. Two things is all I want to say to you here practically. Number one, the value of planning in advance for your funeral. Now, those of you who know me best, a few of you do know, I'm a control freak. I like to be in charge. Yeah, yeah, and so, therefore, I've already got my funeral written out. My family's not going to have to wonder who's going to sing, who's going to pray, who's going to preach. What songs are we going to use? What scripture? I've got it all written out. Now, I've already had to change it several times. Some of the people I had in there, they've already died and gone on to heaven. So I've had to change it. But that's okay. Now, I'm not saying you go to the detail that I've gone to. You may not be a control freak. But tell your family, when I die, I'd like for so-and-so to conduct the funeral. I'd like for that song to be sung. I'd like for this scripture to be used. Brother Mike and I both know when you go to a bereaved family... You sit down and talk with them, and oftentimes we ask them, what do you think would be the, the prefer preferred scripture to be used? And at times people say this, oh, they loved all the Bible. Well, you can't use all the Bible in a funeral. You've got to have selectives. And so be specific. What passage would you like to be used? What songs would you like to be? So oh, I like all of them. Well, we can't sing all of them. So be selective in what you do. 
plan the service. Now, why I'm saying that is this. Now, listen to me carefully. When you die, somebody's got to do that. Now, wouldn't you rather do it than have to pass it to somebody else and they're all upset that you've died and they got to go through all that grief and they're trying to decide what we're going to do. Go ahead and do it. Today, interestingly, you can even go to the funeral home and prearrange your funeral. You can pay for it in advance on today's dollars. And if you live 40 more years, you still get a pretty good bargain because you pay for it on today's dollars. I'm not trying to sell you on cemeteries or plots, but I'm just saying you can pay for it today. You can prearrange your funeral so that when the time comes that we die, the family doesn't have to go through an upheaval of everything. Now, let your funeral be in accord with the way your level of living. If you've lived a mediocre life with a medium income, don't feel like you've got to have the fanciest casket they sell at the funeral home in order to be buried properly. And sometimes families get on a guilt trip and say, well, daddy did so much for us, we just want to spend $25,000 on his casket. My sister happens to work in the funeral home down here in Homewood. She called me one day. She said, I want you to come down and see a $25,000 casket. Said, it's what Ronald Reagan was buried in. I said, Helen, I'd, I could care less what it looks like, and I ain't never going to have one. So just tell him, I said, thank you. Now, I'm not being unkind, but, you know, I don't need to be put away in a $25,000 casket any more than I need to drive a $200,000 automobile. I don't. I drive a Ford, and I'm glad to have it. And I, what I'm saying is, sometime at funerals, people feel like, to use a crude phrase, we've got to put on the dog. No. Just be buried in the same level that you have lived in all these years. We all don't live in a $2 million house. And so, we can be. And then the other question that sometimes is asked, and more recently, the more questions is, Dr. Carter, what do you think about cremation? Is that Christian? Well, my answer is always this. Whether you go to dust in 30 seconds or 30 hours, you still go to dust. All right? One way or the other, you're going to dust. Now, you can do it shortly or you can do it slowly. But either way, we go back to dust from which we came. So there's nothing Christian or non-Christian about whether or not you do, and cremation is certainly more cheap, a cheaper way to have a funeral. I'm not recommending it. Don't hear me say that. If somebody says, I can't think about that. Don't think about it then. If you don't want to do it, I'm not here to sell you on it. Just don't look down your face on people who do do it because there's nothing wrong with it. It's just what they've chosen to do. Now, beyond that, let me say a second word here practically, and that is Remember when you come to planning the funeral and planning the service, the main primary objective of a funeral is not to eulogize the deceased. There's a place for that. I've never conducted a funeral when I didn't try to find something good to say about this person. You can usually find something good to say about anybody. So, but by the same token, the whole service ought not to be just eulogizing all the good things about that person. And especially if that person wasn't too good. I've been to some funerals where they, they made a reprobate sound like a saint. You can't do that at a funeral. 
heard about a guy in the middle of a funeral, walked down the aisle, looked in the casket, said, Reverend, excuse me, I just want to be sure I was at the right funeral. <laughs> Have you ever been to a funeral like that? Where somebody would just talk about somebody and you say, my soul, did they know this person? Or even a wife or husband sitting out there, did he really know my wife, my husband? Be honest, not crude, not crass, but honest. But remember, there's a place for eulogizing. But the primary purpose of a funeral is to comfort the living. The dead are not going to know anything about all the nice things we say about them at their funeral. The family will appreciate a few words, but what that family is looking for is comfort. And the two things mostly that comfort are prayers to God and a word from God in the Bible. Those two things are the two main pillars we use to comfort the people who are grieving. And so understand that. Now, the other thing that I'm going to say to you is about planning the service and the funeral is what you may not agree with, but it's okay. Our traditional way of having funerals is that somebody dies and the body is taken to the funeral home. They embalm the body and we have a time for visitation. The family goes before that and then there's a time of visitation and then we have the funeral service and all that I've just been describing. And then we all go outside and get in our cars and we line up and if the cemetery is a good ways away, then we have a procession out there and the police car, zoom, 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 are running by us and getting us safely to the cemetery. You've been there, you know what I'm talking about. I actually saw a policeman nearly killed trying to guide people to the funeral site. Now, where did that come from? Not in the Bible. It's just tradition. Now, if you want to do it that way, it's okay. And have a police escort, it's okay. I don't. And when you come to my funeral, it ain't going to be that way. You say, well, preacher, what can you do? Think about it. I did it with my own parents. We went to the cemetery the family and a few close friends at a specified time in conjunction with the funeral director and we had the burial. Now there's not anything comforting any way you talk about about a cemetery. Bunch of tombstones and a bunch of graves there and a hole in the ground and a vault down in that and mom and daddy or whoever it is is put out in the grave and sods put on top of it. Now you know, you can make it as nice as you want to it's sad, especially if it's a cold winter day and especially if it's raining. It's a sad time. So we got the worst over with. We went there. We had a short service of scripture and prayer mainly. And we committed her body back to the dust from which it came. Then we got in our cars without any escort. We made our way back to the church. And when we got to church, we had a worship service, a celebration of life. We sang songs. We had scripture, we had prayer, we had a message that was comforting from the Bible, and we left singing because he lives. Now, I want to tell you, dear friend, that's a lot more comforting to me than looking down in the hole where mama is. I'm just telling you just exactly like it is. Why would you have to do it the way we've always done it? I said you wouldn't agree with me. It's okay. You may think I'm crazy. When you die, you die the way you want to. I'm going to die the way I want to. But I do want to throw it out for at least thoughts. The primary purpose 
of the funeral is to comfort those who have died, uh, those who are living in behalf of those who have died. Quickly, biblically, what does the Word of God say about the funeral and about death and dying? First of all, remember the biblical words that are used to describe death. Paul uses the word sleep, you know. He talks in 1 Thessalonians 4 about those who are asleep. He's talking about people who've died. Well, going to sleep is not a morbid thing. I look forward to going to sleep. I go to sleep every night, and I, I sleep well. I want you to know that's a wonderful picture of what Paul said. You go to sleep here, and you wake up in the presence of God. Now, there's nothing morbid about that. It's the way it is. Or the word departure is used in the Bible for death sometime. Paul seemed to have had a premonition. He was going to die. And in 1 Timothy chapter, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8, he said, The time of my departure is at hand. He's talking about dying. He said, I'm going to die. I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the course. Departing. Well, most of us have gone from one place to another at one time or another. And you're going to make a journey and you're going to depart. There's nothing more but about it. It's just departure from this world to the world to come. The song says, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. There's not anything morbid about that. When we all get to heaven, what a day of what? Rejoicing that will be. Now, so follow the logic of it. Death can be sleep. Death can be viewed as departure. Sometimes it's viewed as transition. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the very first verse, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, that is this body, be dissolved, that is we die. We have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. What's he saying? He's saying we move from this kind of body to another kind. This existence to another kind. It's a transition from here to there. There's nothing morbid about that. So the biblical words are nothing to be sad about, to sleep, to depart, to transition. The biblical view of death is this, basically, body plus spirit equal soul. When you die, your body and mind dis disintegrates and deteriorates, goes back to dust. The spirit goes to be with God. The soul ceases to exist. And don't ever think that the idea, I hear some preachers talk about the natural immortality of the soul. That is not a biblical idea. Plato talked about that, but he didn't know the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk about the natural immortality of the soul. Your soul is not immortal. Mine is not. Immortal means no beginning and no end. I had a beginning. I'll have an end. Only God is immortal. That's what 1 Timothy 6 says. So it's not the natural immortality of the soul. What is it? The body decays and goes back to dust. The spirit goes back to be with God. And that's a wonderful picture. There's just a separation of body and spirit for the time being. Now, what about that intermediate state then, preacher? Better I prefer to call it the, intermediate, the, the disembodied state. Martin Luther talked about a soul sleep. I don't believe in that. I don't think you do. 
is not so much a soul sleep, but the, the biblical view of the intermediate state or the disembodied state. What happens after we die? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know, but it tells us everything we would need to know. And what happens, according to the Bible, and the, this is that it's, first of all, that this intermediate or this disembodied state is an immediate state. Why do you know that, preacher? At the cross, Jesus said to that dying thief who repented, T-O-D-A-Y. What? That's about as immediate as you can get. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So once we die, that very moment, immediately, Paul put it this way, to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. So it's an immediate state. It's a conscious state. I don't know all the details about it, but if you read Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, when you get home, there's that conversation there between Abraham and the rich man. They're both conscious and they communicate. It's a conscious state. People in hell know they're in agony and suffering and pain. It's a fixed state or permanent state, if you prefer. In other words, there's no second chances after death. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, the most sensible thing you could do on the second Sunday of January of 2015 is make Jesus Christ Lord of your life right now while you still got breath in your body. There is no second chance. There are going to be no invitations given after you died for you to come to Christ. So it's a fixed state, but it's an incomplete state. There's come a day when the bed in Christ will rise first. We which are alive will be caught up together with them in the air. And the body, resurrected body, and the spirit will be reunited. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now there's not anything morbid about that. In fact, it's a hope. It's something we look forward to. Now I want to live as long as I can, but when I die, I hope somebody will cry, but I hope they won't cry without hope. That they have hope in their heart that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's the last thing. The Bible talks about our hope. You remember what Jesus said? I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Ultimately, death <coughs> cannot separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And so we have hope in the midst of death. That doesn't mean we're hoping to die. It just means when that day comes, we're going to be able to look forward to being forever and forever and forever in the presence of God. Now, there's nothing morbid about that, but the point, my whole message here is, before your loved ones die, think through psychologically, practically, biblically, what do we need to know and what do we need to think about? And as I've said to you here, remember, when it comes time to die, be sure that's all you have to do. Will you bow together with me for just a moment? With our heads bowed and eyes closed, you'll say, Brother Charles, I'm not ready to die. And I understand, if that be the case, then right here this morning, 
You can accept Christ as Savior and Lord of your life. And you don't have to fear death anymore. God doesn't want you to fear death. He will give you hope. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.